Welcome to the Jabadoo Education Podcast, Episode 19. But I think we have this ethical responsibility. We owe it to ourselves and to our students to be able to learn. If I don't know about something, then I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to learn about something. And I'm going to find ways of including that child in the, in the school activity. You're listening to the Jabadoo Education Podcast. I'm your host, John Ruths, and I'm going to introduce you to some of the leading professionals in the fields of education, psychology, and leadership to bring you the most relevant and up-to-date tips, tricks, and tools for you to use in your classroom. Welcome to Jabadoo. Hey, what is going on, teachers, educators, and everyone else listening? <laughs> um, wow, great show for you today. Uh, I'm sitting down with Dr. Fernando Nidich, who has a really unique perspective on education because he grew up in Brazil. And so he experienced the Brazilian private school education. Um, and we dive into that and how it played a role in his desire to continue his education, uh, as well as how he was inspired by uh, Brazilian education philosopher Paulo, Paulo Freire. I believe I said that right. Um, and really how uh, you know the combination of those two things really pushed him into becoming an English teacher first and now a professor. Um, and the focus of our conversation today is largely about this concept of creating a culturally and linguistically responsive classroom. And this goes above and beyond just having a culturally and linguistically sensitive classroom, because instead of just acknowledging the different languages and cultures in your class, you, you should be actively pursuing and engaging in content that meets the students where they are and allows them to see themselves in the content and in the learning, which ultimately creates a community of eager and represented learners, which is just so important. So I'm really excited for you to start listening. Before you do, though, I got to cover the bases. We've got a Facebook group. Go check us out. Facebook.com slash groups slash Jabadoo. Would love to have you join that conversation. We've got a newsletter, email newsletter that I send out just once a week right now, really just reminding you about the different episodes and what's coming up. So you can hop onto that email chain and that way you know if you're interested in listening <laughs> to these episodes. Um, after that, uh, we've got show notes. Everything that we talk about on this show can be found by going to jabadoo.com slash show 19. And on there you will find... Um, everything that we talk about on this show, as well as some affiliate links to some of the books that we mentioned. If you are interested in not just getting a book, but also supporting the show, you can click those links. All right. I think that is it. Let's get into my conversation with Dr. Fernando Nidich. Today we have on Dr. Fernando Nidich, uh, on us or on the podcast with us. Good Lord. Um, and yeah, uh, Fernando, we we got linked up actually through uh, Mark Alter uh, out of uh, NYU, and uh, he uh, I had such a fun conversation with him, and we've been talking now for 15 minutes, not recording, uh, and I've had such a fun conversation with you uh, so far, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. Same here. It's a pleasure to be talking to you today, and uh, I actually have checked the other podcasts that you have produced. And I was very impressed to manage to put together a great group of people with discussing important ideas. And uh, I, I hope that our conversation will be one of those. Yeah, I thank you for that. That's great. Um, so, yeah, uh, like I said, we were, we were chatting beforehand, just having a really good time. And uh, you had mentioned uh, you, you have 
so many cool experiences coming through it. And the first one obviously is um, growing up uh, in Brazil. So um, I, I'm really going to be curious to see uh, just your experience with the Brazilian education system and kind of maybe some parallels and some differences that you're seeing between the Brazilian system and the U.S. system. Um, so why don't we just start off by, uh, can you take us through what was your schooling experience coming through um, as a child, as a, you know, a teen and, and coming through uh, the school system in Brazil? Yeah, no, of course, this is really, it, it's really interesting because nowadays I am very committed to public education. And I guess one of the reasons is because I actually, as uh, in my K-12 experience, was in private education. Okay. Brazil is just like, another, like any other country in South America that, you know, unfortunately, because of socioeconomic factors, uh, it is a very sad reality that there is no uh, public investment, at least in basic early education. You know, it's interesting that a lot of the people later on in life, people go to federal universities. And those are actually considered very high quality public universities. But the same is not true for the K-12, the foundation years. And in fact, you know, in countries like that, there are a lot of, of kids that do not attend school, which is a reality. Kids that need to work, kids that are out on the street. So that's why if the family has the means to send it to a private school, that's the choice that they end up making. Because they know that later on, that's going to pay off. So growing up, seeing all those, that, that, that socioeconomic gap and, of course, the reality of the haves and the have-nots and what that translates to into opportunities, into access to knowledge. Uh, once I knew, and I knew very early that I wanted to be an educator, I actually made that commitment that I wanted to work towards public education, that education is a public good. So even though I know some people actually sometimes they question that about me, that I went to private education, but I ended up, you know, doing my, yeah. developing my professional life, working towards public education, but because of that, because I know that I experienced a very solid K-12 education because I went to a small school, mm -hmm. private, uh, it was a Jewish school, okay. and uh, there was a lot of emphasis in, you know, knowledge and study. So not only did I develop the knowledge, but also the skills, the dispositions, that helped me later on in life to deal with the challenges and to pursue further education. And I think we, we should all be entitled to that, right? Should, education should be a public good. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the, the we're in, in the U.S. here, we're kind of in this uh, battle between, not necessarily battle, I mean, from the public education world, we're overwhelmingly, obviously, very motivated to continue the public education, but in our uh, government right now, we've got uh, Betsy DeVos, who's very interested in, in shifting some stuff over to private and charter education. So um, yeah, I mean, that it's, I think the perspective that you're coming from, like the, the issues that you saw in, in Brazil as, as you were uh, growing up, um, outside of just public education, like that, that battle between public education and private education, why are you on the public education side? Well, because of that, I think that the, the main answer is because of access and opportunity. I feel like uh, because I've seen kids that had uh, immense uh, potential, and, in, and even if they didn't, they may not have even been able to realize that they had potential because they did not have access. In many places in the world, people don't have access to, uh, uh, to a school. They don't have opportunities. They don't have socioeconomic conditions to actually attend school. And this is why I got it, it got my attention to the fact that this, this, this is a education is a basic human right. 
And I think that's the way we should look at it. When I see that in the United States, there is this conversation about moving education more toward the private or getting companies, big companies involved in education, that doesn't do anybody any good because education is a public good and it has to be managed by the public. And uh, it's very sad because I, I'm an English language learner myself and that my career working in multilingual, multicultural education, I'm also a very strong advocate for kids for whom English is not their home language. And I see that, uh, I live in New York City, and I see that many of those uh, charter schools, the, there are students who do not have access to those schools, and English language learners actually end up being one of this particular student population that sometimes you create those schools and you, you, you create more obstacles for students mm -hmm. to be able to. If there was a system where schools like that were developed, but they were also open to everyone, Everyone, this is, the, this is the one beautiful thing about American public education. Uh, every child is welcome. You never say no to a child. And, yeah. and in fact, no questions asked, right? Yeah. Uh, so we know from the court decision, Plyer versus though that to, in, anybody is actually, regardless of citizenship status or socioeconomic background, everybody is in, the, that's the beauty of the American public educational system. And that's actually very rare. This is one of the things that even though I, you know, when I compare, you were asking me before to compare, one of the things I loved about public education here, and sometimes people don't, don't realize, is how much you get out of schools mm. in the United States. Schools here, they are, first of all, the buildings are very, at least the ones, I know that, you know, people usually complain that, that there should be more, but for someone like me who have worked in, in countries with extreme poverty, where schools are not nearly close to what schools look like in the US. Here, you know, you have amazing buildings, amazing resources, amazing teachers. Kids are well fed in school. Of course, we always look yeah. for improvement, but there is so much that we already have so that if we focused on investing a little more and getting more organized and getting people to, getting the public to advocate for public education, oh my God. Yeah, this and everything. we were, yeah, and we were we were kind of talking beforehand that um, just the that accessibility piece and uh, you know the the experience of being overseas. Um, I know that you you grew up in Brazil, but you spent some time in the Middle East. And we were kind of just saying that uh, I wish that it was mandated that every student in the United States goes overseas for even if it's just two weeks, four weeks, um, or a semester. The you you notice so much about what we have and you get to appreciate those things like a school that hasn't been updated since the 80s uh, well i mean you still have a yeah. great building it's not leaking on your students you know the plumbing's working you've got you know fresh water all these things that we take for granted um uh, so I, I love that uh i love your perspective and i love uh hearing that from you so take us then let's transition then to your experience in the middle east because um you grew up in brazil private school went to university in brazil uh, and then life took you to the Middle East. So I'm, I'm curious about hearing more about that. Yeah, I, I actually went to a public university in Brazil, which is not the opposite. Oh, there you go. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> but it's interesting because, of course, I went to, through a teacher education program, and I, uh, I started my career, my teaching career, in the, in the Brazilian favelas, in the shanty towns. So okay. it's exactly what you were saying. When I go to a school here, and, and when I see that people complain about, you know, what the school looks like and the conditions, I say, guys, you should see what it's like in other parts of the world mm -hmm. to learn to value what you have here. 
-hmm. And this is why I couldn't, I just want to, I'm going to talk about my experience. I just want to address what you said about yeah. having teach, having our, uh, we know that the demographics in the United States is changing dramatically, right? The schools are becoming more and more diverse. Absolutely, as they in should. Fact, yeah, in, in fact, I think it's, it was 2014, the first time where there were, where the so-called minorities actually became my majority in terms of numbers sure. of students in the public schools in the United States. And, and part of my job today, which is to prepare teachers to teach for diversity, to teach for multilingual, multicultural environments, uh, it doesn't matter what course we, we, we design and the kinds of experiences that we try to bring to the classroom for our students. The best experience is still to immerse yourself and to open up and to see other countries, other cultures. And that's what I did with my life. I was 18 when I left Brazil and mm -hmm. I ended up going to the Middle East. So I was, uh, I spent uh, a long time in Israel, then Egypt and Lebanon. I've, you know, I've worked for a while in a refugee camp. I saw different types of uh, educational institutions and different types of what we call school, right? Yep. Uh, the, the reason why I decided to, I mean, there were different reasons why I decided to do that. Uh, of course, my mom always jokes with me that when I was a kid, I used to open the atlas and used to say, "I'm going to live here. I'm going to live there." I always <laughs> traveling, so that that's that. There's that aspect. We I had always a, liked. Yeah, we had a globe at our house, and we would just spin it and then go here. <laughs> I think a bunch yeah. of kids have probably done that. I'm going to live here, and it like ends up being the middle of the Pacific Ocean. But anyway, <laughs> but but still, you know, the difference is that my mom. I, I guess she probably thought that I was joking, but I wasn't. I was. <laughs> So when I finally, you know, that's why I had to wait until I turned 18 and I was kind of, you know, and a young adult, exactly, <laughs> yeah. I was allowed to leave and I did. And I spent, you know, two years, of course, every time I traveled, I ended up going back home. Mm -hmm. uh, but home also has gotten a different meaning for me, what home is, because the more I travel, the more I realize this is why it's so important. It really, traveling does broaden the mind in the sense that you see other realities. You see yeah. people, you know, even, and we're talking here, I'm talking to you about the late 80s, early 90s. So that was already a world that had huge socioeconomic differences that have only become more and more apparent mm -hmm. as, you know, if you look at, mm -hmm. if you think about what's going on in the world today, you know, years ago, decades ago, we were talking about immigrants and migrants and refugees. That situation has only become deeper now. And, uh, Part of what I'm glad that that experience uh, provided me with is that I kind of honed my skills and the tools that I have today to help teachers understand what it's like for a child that comes into your school in the United States and not only does not speak English, but come from a refugee camp or come from an environment where yeah. they, they had interrupted or limited formal education, which is becoming the reality. And this is where the public comes into place as, as a public system we should create mechanisms to be able to to provide the access and the opportunities that i was telling you about before and create these nets that can catch these students as opposed to in other systems where if you're not if you're not keeping up you get left behind period absolutely yeah and it, it requires because in that's what happens in business right if you don't if you yeah. don't i mean especially now with this COVID 19 if you didn't have an online presence to this point, I mean, you had two decades, let's give it or take, right, to create uh, an online presence, whether it's ordering online or having some sort of online community. And all of a sudden now you are relying on that technology to continue your business. 
yeah, it's uh, you got to you got to stay up. But the the education world, no matter where students are, we're always going to build them up to where we hope they can be, no matter exactly. how far behind they go. So yeah. um, when yeah, you talk about the, the difference, for example, I, I see a lot of people talking about the digital divide and how it's also been highlighted because of COVID, which is absolutely to the idea yeah. of who has access to. But it's interesting because, and I've observed this in my own community in New York City, where um, I live very close to uh, the public housing complex. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there were, uh, and, and a lot of immigrants who live, who live there, they are considered the essential workers, right? Because they right. are the ones working mm -hmm. grocery stores, you know, all the places that we need to. Yeah. And their kids, basically, of course, they are at home. They don't have the support that they need. But apart from the digital divide of the access to technology, there's also the access to literacy. There's the yeah. digital literacy divide. Because even after that the kids were given a laptop or something, sometimes it's one, one laptop for four kids, and they did not have not only the internet access, but the digital literacy skills to be able to actually sit down and know what to do with that computer, how to attend the class online. So you're right. We had a long time to prepare, but we did not do a good job about that. <laughs> it's only being highlighted now with it's, the crisis. It's being highlighted. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and before we move on, uh, I think a lot of kind of what we're talking about is kind of encapsulated in um, one of your early uh, influencers was um, uh, Paulo Freire, right? Absolutely. Um, and I, I've heard his name and I, I know the he wrote um, The Pedagogy of the Oppressed and I, I know that title. Um, but can you just for maybe a couple seconds, a handful of seconds here, a minute, whatever, uh, whatever it turns out to be, uh, just highlight, you know, what was it about him other than being a Brazilian philosopher, which obviously has some influence to it, but what, what was it about his work that uh, really captivated you? That's a, it's a big question and I'm going to try to make it short. <laughs> I'll give uh, you more than 30 seconds. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> because Paulo Freire, it's not just about, uh, you know, people talk about the pedagogy of the oppressed and, and critical in the U.S. People love to, to refer to Paulo Freire as, you know, the father of critical pedagogy. And, uh, but I think much more than a pedagogy, it's, uh, it's like, a, it's a philosophy. It's an orientation. Right. It's even a way of life for me. And I think it has a lot to do uh, with the edu be developing education that is contextual, looking at the person who's you know sitting in front of you and trying to, 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 to provide access for those people. You know, Paul Fidi started working with adult literacy programs because again, in countries like Brazil and South America and many other parts of the world, because people do not have access to quality and to school, to quality education to schools, they end up never even being able to to, to write their names, mm -hmm. right? Which mm -hmm. there's nothing more basic in the world than being able to write down your name. Yeah. It gives you a sense of identity, being able to write and look, this is my name. That's how I write it. Yeah. So I think what I was fascinated about is that, 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 that this ability of creating connections between different populations, understanding the types of literacy that they already have, Right. One of the things that I work a lot, even when I came to the U.S. and I started working here, I see a lot of immigrant communities where they have they, parents, for example, that do not they never went to school in their country. They never learned to read or to sure. write. Sure. But they but they have other literacy practices, whether it's a religious literacy practice or whether it's oral history. Right. Everybody has a story and everybody has history, education. And I think Paul Freire taught me that. It's to, to, to look at that person with human eyes 
and to understand that what, what types of literacy you know they, they bring with them and learn to build on that type of literacy in order to educate them to become advocates for their own condition and better and, and to for the betterment of their condition. I think one of the things about uh, what, what we call critical pedagogy in the US is this idea of uh, seeing the others as partners in the educational process, mm -hmm. valuing uh, what they bring to the table and together building that literacy that they need to face the world. Because let's be honest, if you don't develop literacy, if you don't, as Paulo Ferreira said, if you don't develop the ability to read the word, it's going to be more difficult for you to be able to read the world. A lot of these people, they already have the world. So what you want to give them is the ability to read the word so they can bring the two together. It opens up, you know, a world of possibilities. I remember, you know, I, I did work in some adult programs in Brazil and, 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 and the, the basic literacy programs, if you see, you see it in the face of, the, of a person that, you know, I had a student once who, who always, on, on her way to school, walked and walked by this newsstand and, you know, in the newsstand, you see lots of magazines and newspapers. Mm -hmm. And one, one image, I'll never forget that scene of, of having that student coming to class and telling everyone what it was like for the first time to be able to stop in front of the newsstand and be able to read the headline of a newspaper. That wow. gives you a sense of citizenship, right? Mm -hmm. You suddenly realize that you were forgotten, you were held back, and now the ability to read the word gives you a sense of citizenship. I exist. I, I can participate. I can read and therefore I can write and I can, you know, I can communicate. This is basic, a basic, again, human need and a human yeah. right. And so many people, I think, take that for granted, for sure, especially if you've grown up in the U.S. system. I mean, you graduate knowing how to read and yeah. Uh, we, there's that uh, that critical transition then too from uh, around second, third, fourth grade, the switch from learning how to read to reading in order to learn. Exactly. Right. So yeah. if you're behind already when you get to those grades, um, it puts you even further behind in your schooling. And uh, yeah, such an important important uh, piece uh, to your education. So. Um, yeah, that's fantastic. Thank you for, for touching on that. Uh, so moving on then from, uh, you, you spent the time in the Middle East, you actually spent some time uh, at Oxford as well. Cambridge, yeah. Uh, I did that in our intro too. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Cambridge University over in England. So um, what, was, what was the experience there and, and why, why why'd you go there? So it's interesting because I, I, when I went to college, my, in my teacher education program was in language and literature. And of course, I did study Portuguese and all the corresponding literatures. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I studied English. And I, again, I guess part of my fascination with being abroad was also a fascination with the foreign languages. English is kind of my fifth language. So I, I, I really, uh, I decided that I wanted to be an English teacher. And I taught for many years English as a foreign language. Uh, and one of the jobs that I had was teaching, actually, I taught at a British school in Brazil. And through that okay. British school, I got, a, 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 I got a scholarship to go to the, to the British Council to go to the UK, study. And, you know, that's where I, where I got a degree in teaching English as, a, as an additional language or as a second language. And, uh, my, again, my experience there was fantastic because just like the US, you know, the UK gets a lot of immigrants. Mm -hmm. And um, there are a lot of immigrant communities. 
I, I learned very early the meaning uh, of what an ethnic enclave is, this idea of communities of immigrants that live together and, and the benefits and also the hardship that I understand what it's like for an immigrant to come to a certain community and to have the support of you know people who speak the same language and who share yeah. the same culture. But at the same time, the, 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 the hardship of that that might create in terms of having access to the larger society. So I think part of the work that I did in the UK was, you know, it sounds simple. It's just learning how to teach a, a language, any language as a second, in my case, English as a second or a foreign language. But at the same time, that idea of what, that this is why, for example, when I tell people to be that I'm a big and a strong proponent of bilingual education, yeah. and there's a lot of criticism against that, I say, listen, I'm actually a proposal of multilingual education for the same <laughs> reason. The U.S. is one of the few areas in the world where people only speak one language. Exactly. I mean, it, it's so, yeah, I, I forget where I heard the joke originally, but it's, it's what do you call somebody who speaks three languages? They're trilingual. What do you call somebody who speaks two languages? Bilingual. What do you call somebody who speaks one language? United States. Uh, <laughs> American. Yeah. American, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah that, exactly. that notion so, of, um, yeah, bilingualism is... Uh, that's one of the things that I that I saw a lot in the UK and, and, and being able to study there actually opened my eyes to this idea that how possible it is to truly develop a, a classroom where multilingualism and, and multiculturalism is the norm, not the exception, as you're saying. Right. And when and when all those linguistic differences and cultural differences are embraced, they are considered an asset, not a, a hurdle, right? Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, I, 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 it is unfortunate that I do hear from many of my uh, pre-service teachers that are preparing that they, they, they see that as a hurdle, as, a, as, a, as a, an obstacle that they have to learn how to. And I say, listen, it's not an obstacle. You have to embrace, so the moment that you learn to embrace differences and see them as the, 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 the positive aspect that they can contribute to enrich the classroom, you're going to see that you don't even have to speak that language because you already have people who speak that language in your classroom. You just have to accept that and to embrace it, and make embrace that it. child part of your community. And that definitely uh, transitions nicely then into some of your current work, right? Um, you are, uh, uh, I have it on my notes here somewhere, I don't know. Um, just cultural, culturally responsive teaching is something that I know that you, um, you focus on. Was that part of your PhD work as well at NYU or is that something that you are now taking on as a professor at Montclair? Yeah, I think it started as, uh, uh, I mean, it's something that I, uh, I've i always been interested in. Of course, the, the, the academic term that we use, that came later. But, you know, looking back at my, even at the beginning of my career working in, in, in shanty towns in Brazil, that's what I did. That's what I was doing, culturally and linguistically responsive pedagogy, which is so basically... Really oh. quick then, what, can you just give us a quick definition of what is <coughs> culturally and... Uh, uh, linguistically linguistically yeah uh, responsive teaching what is that well again the idea of learning from the audience that you have in front of you right learning and respecting the students ways of knowing and ways of learning uh, what we call the the, the the term that we use the funds of knowledge of that community every community values different types of knowledge and every community uh, relates to the world differently I think part of my job as an educator is to not to impose my ways of doing things. This is the way you should do it, but try to learn from the community. How do they relate to learning? 
How do they relate to knowledge? What kind of knowledge they value? The more I learn about the communities that I'm inserted in as an educator, the more that I use that knowledge as part of my classroom curriculum, the more engaged I'm going to get the students. And it's a sign of respect. It's a sign of identity. And I'm not saying that one of the things that I hear often is to say, oh, but if I do that, you know, there's this American curriculum that they have to learn. We're not saying, uh, like, I'm going to give you a very simple example of something that uh, uh, literature is a very good example, right? So I always ask my students and I ask this question, like, what did you read? What books or what authors did you read when you were in high school? Right? The, the usual, what is the usual answer that you think I get when I ask that question for my American students? Oh man, Moby Dick's probably one of them. Uh, uh, where the Red Fern Grows. Uh, <laughs> man, I'm, uh, you're, you're bringing me back to something I haven't <laughs> thought about in a long time. So, well, as a joke, my students usually end up saying something like, you know, we read Dead White Man, right? <laughs> yes. Basically, right? Yeah. So, uh, so if you look at the, the, the uh, this is part of also of learning from, from Freire and from the idea of a cultural responsive pedagogy. I think as an educator, we have to learn to question the curriculum and try to understand the rationale behind it. So someone at some point had decided that those were what we call the classics, right? Right. It's, it's like classical. I, I asked them that question about any kind of, uh, I asked them about music, about art. Every time I ask them about composers, they know Beethoven, Mozart, all they know is European white composers, yeah. male, right? Yeah. They never even mention one female composer or even the, the, a painter. The same thing happens with literature. And, and my point is not that, okay, this is garbage now and you're going to throw that in the garbage. Sure. It's, not that. it's about creative, more inclusive classrooms. We have other voices represented in the literature, for example, that should be included in the classroom. So, um, well, when I, when I was in the UK, for example, I had to read Chaucer. And I remember buying the bilingual version of Chaucer. On, <laughs> on, on the one side of the book, I had old English. And on the other side of the book, it was, you know, modern English. That's oh, bilingual in itself, right? Yeah. So I tell my students, and, and I say, and thank God I read that. I'm so happy that I read Chaucer. But I'm also happy that, just to give an example that, you know, nowadays, if you look at curriculums, uh, they, they become more... Uh, inclusive of, of uh, diverse voices. We have Sandra Cisneros representing, you know, the, the House on Mango Street, representing Latino voices. You have new and emergent writers. So the idea is to include, make sure that your, and I just gave you one example of literature, but the same thing uh, is true about music. Uh, we have a music education uh, program in my university. And I, I actually remember that, uh, so for example, in, in music education, uh, the students are taught uh, what I, uh, a high school orchestra looks like or what it should look like, right? So these are the instruments that you have. You have the woodwinds, the string quartet, I mean, you name it, you have the, right? And, yeah. and they, are learn, they are taught basically to, to teach in templates that anything that doesn't fit into that puzzle, they don't know what to do with. Yeah, and then one true. day I had a student who was teaching high school, right? And there was this kid from India who played the sitar. And he wanted to be a part of this high school orchestra. Uh, and mm. the teacher initially said no, because the teacher didn't know how to include a child, because the child played a musical instrument that the teacher was not familiar with. And this is what we yeah. can. And again, we don't have, we, nobody's a walking encyclopedia. We don't know sure. everything, right? 
But I think we have uh, this ethical responsibility. We owe it to ourselves and to our students to be able to learn. If I don't know about something, then I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to learn about something. And I'm going to find ways of including that child in the, in the school activity. And what a model is that for students to see, to say, okay, my teacher doesn't know about this, but they're going to put the effort into learning about this. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, yeah, and it's definitely something that, you know, as I'm only, this is my sixth year teaching, so I'm not that far removed from the university setting. And we had, I think, one semester of like multicultural music and the rest, I mean, all of my music history, like it doesn't touch anything on African music or uh, Asian music or South American music is almost non-existent in, in uh, my, at least in my, my university training. So um, it is something that I've definitely in, in the last few years have become more aware of and have become more uh, just interested in finding not only music of all the other cultures, but making sure that I, I do it in a way that is accessible to my students as well. That's awesome, too, because this is the way that we, and, and, and the, this is the, the big thing about culturally responsive teaching. It's not just about reproducing, but it's about questioning and changing, because we usually end up teaching the way that we were taught. So even the same thing right. happens with curriculum, yes. right? We if end I, up teaching I, the way that we were taught. Yeah, yeah no matter, I, I see that with my students. So they, they, you know, it's funny now we, we, that we are all online, I see it even more so because we, we, we try to create uh, opportunities to be less teacher centered and more student oriented. And sometimes the students actually come back to me and when I want, you know, like in Zoom, you put them into those small groups. They don't want that. They are very big. They, they want actually, they want to listen to me as if I were the authority, right? Yeah. And I said, this is not, you know, so, so because they grew up with lectures. So mm -hmm. they, we're trying to give them, you know, different mechanisms, tools, opportunities, more progressive pedagogies, but they're going to end up going back to the school and teaching the same way that they were taught. And the same thing can happen with the, with the curriculum. They just repeat the pieces of information that they've been, you know, that the stories that have been told for generations. And, and history yeah. has changed. Populations have changed. Life, as you know, it has changed. Even, even the perspective from history changes Absolutely. you know like that i mean that's the the big influence as to why we even like you said in music we're we're learning all about the dead white guys and it's because that's how our history was written yeah right and you when, you, when people history is actually a very good example john because people when when you study history you always study history from the perspective of the winner right right the, the problem with that and i think this is what i try to also uh make visible in my classroom that the students sometimes have a hard time understanding that this is how, because we are so exposed to Western culture and Western values, those become the norm, right? Mm. And everything that doesn't fit into the categories and the way that I understand those categories, then if you're different and I don't know what to do with it, then I end up operating with the deficit model. And this is something that we have to fight against. And I think that's a central to any kind of culturally and linguistically responsive pedagogy, not to look at the other as having a deficit right having a difference right. being different doesn't mean being it's not about judgment or, or or better or worse and unfortunately because of the way we are we are kind of taught in schools we end up you know if you don't fit the norms that i understand then there's something wrong with you it's not mm. about me it's about you mm. and, and and it's a mindset and it's a, such a difficult mindset to change i always tell my students the most difficult uh, thing in teacher education 
is not to prepare teachers to teach, to, to give them pedagogical, right. what, what we used to call the pedagogical content knowledge. The most difficult thing is to, 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 to work on dispositions, on, on ways of, uh, of looking at the world and interpreting what you see, right? Mm. And, 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 you know, the ideas of the, 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 the preconceived notions that you have, our prejudices, our biases, this, this, this category of disposition, that's for me the most difficult thing to work on. And as an educator, you cannot come into the classroom and bring your own views or impose them onto your students. It should be the other way around, right? Learning from them who they are, and, and then they learn from you who you are. It's, sure. a, it's an exchange. It's a two-way street. Yeah. But our classes, are, our, our universities, I mean, in general, our educational system is very top-down, right? Sure. I, and this is one of the things that Freire always, uh, you know, uh, fought against the idea that uh, what he called the banking education, right? That the idea that teachers are the owners of knowledge and that they are going to, to, to the, the analogy of a bank, that you're going to deposit right. the knowledge into the students' heads. And, and that's not that's not learning. That's not growing, right? Yeah, especially now in the information age where students can just go home and Google something and see if yeah. you're right or wrong. Exactly. Yeah, I think, uh, something that I, I've shifted in the last, even, even in the last year, is shifting from teaching students what to think to teaching them how to think, right? And in terms of what music Absolutely. is, it's not about teaching them the, the history or the notation. It's more about teaching them how to engage and how to appreciate you know, at least for me, that's, that's definitely shifted a little bit. So, um, and that ties, ties back into that cultural responsive and linguistically responsive teaching, I think. So, yeah, and linguistically, and, 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 and linguistically responsive, not just in terms of kids who come to school uh, speaking a language other than English, but think about all the linguistic varieties, right? All the dialects that we have. Absolutely. Think about students who come to school speaking African American vernacular English. Yeah, slang. And all the yeah, all that slang. All exactly. Uh, all the challenges. <laughs> you, exactly. Yeah. I mean, these are all different languages that the teacher has to learn to understand and respect. Yeah. I, or kids that come to school. I'll give you an example. When I my, my first experience teaching the U.S., it was in an elementary school, a bilingual school in the Bronx in New York, and I've written about that. Because I was charged with being the ESL teacher, right? And, and I had the student who was a child in first grade. And basically, I was told that that student had a learning disability. And, uh, you know, as I, as I started my tutoring, I realized that I couldn't see anything wrong with the mm -hmm. child. And I thought that, that there was something wrong with me, that, oh, my God, what is it that I'm not seeing? Uh, and I finally went to the homeroom teacher and I said, listen, I, I'm sorry, but what is the, the disability? I didn't even understand the term learning disability. Mm -hmm. And she said to me, did you notice how he hold the books? And, he, and it's true. He didn't know how to hold the books properly. He didn't know that uh, in English, as in Spanish, which was his native language, you don't, you know, we read from left to right. But there, there were a lot of um, his relationship with the written word had not been developed before coming to school. So one day I actually decided to, 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 to speak to the mother. You know, she was waiting for the child across the street. I, I introduced myself. We had a conversation in Spanish. The mother was what we consider academically illiterate, right? Mm -hmm. She spoke Spanish, but she didn't know how to read or write, and sure. which is the, one of the main reasons why people come to this country for the opportunity that yep. we were talking about before. 
So again, she worked 10,000 jobs. And another myth that I have to find is this idea that immigrant parents are not interested or involved in, in, in their child's education. That, that's not true at all. Yeah. They are. But of course, there are clear limits to what they can do. And Pedro's mother told me that. You know, I can sit down and, and, and observe him and, and, and create a space for homework or for studying at home, but I cannot read the line. Yeah. One day my principal calls me and complains to me that she she's sending letters at the, to the homes in Spanish and the parents are not responding. And I said to her, because you are writing letters. They can't read. Mm. Of course they're not responding. You know, it's mm. a letter. You have to find ways of communicating with those parents ways that they understand. So, yeah. and that's what happened to Pedro. And I realized, I pieced together that basically who grew up in a home where there were no books because he grew up without the written literacy, but he grew up with a lot of oral literacy. The mother told stories at home. He understood narrative. He understood characters, plot, all of those things, but he didn't Just know how to hold written down. Yeah. yeah. He didn't know. Yeah. And, and by the way, why do you label that again, this need yeah. that we have, to put labels in things that we don't understand. We don't have to put a label in a child because there's a danger that that label is going to follow the child throughout their schooling. That happens a lot with English language learners. There's a term that they call the long-term English language learners. Those kids who are placed in English language, English as a second language, and, and, and that basically goes and you know, moves with them throughout their schooling. Well, the brain is a muscle. So the more they hear that I'm an ELL student, the more they start to believe it. Yeah, I, I definitely. That's very, that's actually very important. Of course, the yeah. more you hear, you end up believing that. If people keep telling you that you don't have what it takes, you, you end up internalizing that. Maybe I'm not good enough. Right. Yeah. And there's certainly, I mean, you could, you could uh, have an entire uh, podcast, not even just an episode, but an, an entire podcast completely dedicated to uh, all of the challenges and, and ways that we can help uh, not just ELL students, but special learner students, uh, miscategorize students, all, all sorts of that. But uh, for, for time's sake, we're going to move on. Um, just really briefly, I, I saw that you do have a book uh, that you've edited and authored. Um, so it's titled Develop, Developing Critical Thinking from Theory to classroom practice. And that last part is what really got me excited was that connection from the research and, and the theory to how do we put it into teachers' hands and make it applicable. And uh, one of the, on the, on the Amazon uh, uh, description, it said, uh, scholars and practitioners from several content areas introduced several examples of instructional strategies, classroom practices, and projects at multiple grade levels. And I just went, yes. All of that, all of that. So I'll give you, the floor is yours. Uh, give you a couple minutes. Just tell us what that book's about and why it's important for teachers. Uh, again, remember when you were saying earlier in the conversation that you were now focusing on not what to think, but how to think? Yeah. I think that the, the, the book for me, it came out of, I do a lot of uh, professional development today in schools. Uh, I work with a lot of in-service teachers because because of that, the idea of the helping them, uh, uh, not only with strategies, but with, uh, with that understanding of what it's like to, mm -hmm. or what it should be like to teach uh, <laughs> multilingual, multicultural students, diverse student populations. And uh, so I, I think the idea of the book started based, based on that idea that uh, culturally responsive teaching, uh, critical pedagogy, all the types of uh, uh, pedagogical approaches that I have worked with, they all have this aspect in common, which is the idea 
of learning how to think and learning to think in general, right? And this is something that, unfortunately, it's an exercise that has to be constantly practiced. And I've, I've seen both worlds. I, I have seen a lot of examples of good practice of people who are actually doing that, but I have also seen people that actually don't even understand what to think critically is. Yeah. So my idea was to, first of all, to problematize that. What does it mean to think critically? And can you teach someone to think critically? That was one of the questions that I was mm. actually uh, really, uh, I spent a lot of time thinking about that. Can, and, and even my own practice, I question myself at the university. Am I teaching my, you know, my future teachers in a way that's making them critical educators right. able of thinking critically about, not only about their teaching, but curriculum, content, pedagogy, relationships, diversity, linguistic diversity, cultural diversity. That's how it all started. And then I put together a group of people who are, you know, thinking alike and also examples of uh, some uh, good practices. Uh, some of them are actually come from my experience being in the schools that I invited some of the teachers that I have worked with. And that's another thing that um, for me, it's very important is to give teachers a voice. Uh, I, I, I don't like that separation between university and, and schools. I think we need to also learn to respect teachers more and, and, and we need to learn to give them a voice. Many times, I think we come from the university with that prescriptive attitude, like mm. this is what you should do in the classroom. And I have seen a, a lot of teacher educators telling teachers what to do, but they haven't been in the classroom for yeah. a long time. One of and my they, biggest pet peeves of, of university yeah, yeah. structures. Yeah. Mine too, especially in teacher education. In teacher education, I make a commitment to myself that I am going to spend uh, as much time as possible in the classroom because that's not, it, it fits, you know, it fits me. And, and it's not only because it fits me so that I can, you know, bring that information to my students, but it's a two-way street. I'm learning from teachers constantly. And that's part of also what I want to, to put in the book, to showcase the work of teachers who are actually making a difference. And ultimately making a difference, not only for diverse student populations, for all students. Yeah. Yeah, really, I, I, really fantastic. I'm, I'm really looking forward to uh, getting my hands on that book because I'm really curious to see uh, what, what you copy then. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Um, and we will have that uh, linked in our show notes in case any listener wants to go check out that book. There will be a link for it right there on our show notes page. Um, wow, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much. Um, let's move on to our exit ticket questions then. These are the same four questions that I ask every guest who comes on. And the first one is, you were telling me before we hit record that you were struggling with this one. So what would be your book that you would say teachers need to go read this? Yes, I was struggling with that because it's very, it's always, it's like, you know, other than your me. book, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, thank you. It's like when people ask like your favorite uh, movie, right? Or your favorite. Oh, there's so many. Yeah. Yeah. I, I always say <laughs> I do have a hard time always choosing one. And, but so, so I, I, I think I, I, I would like to focus on a genre. One of the things that I had my students read was biographies of, and there's a lot now of immigrants, right? People mm -hmm. that write about coming to a country and what it was like from uh, there. So it's not something necessarily academic or written by an academic, but it's written by immigrants, people that came, that experienced life in a new country, the challenges, the opportunities, the obstacles, the prejudices. And uh, the reason I like to, to use that a lot in my classrooms is because it makes it real, right? Right. Suddenly, it's not just me talking about this uh, imaginary immigrant. They, right. They're reading 
the life of a story there the, the, and, and of course processing it in the classroom with me but um, so that's why i like to that's one of the genres that i would say just like you know for a while i i was very much into that other genre where you know stories of teachers that have made a difference in their communities and um but what i'm trying to say is that i like books that actually help students and students or people in general right i'm, yeah, talking about yeah. I'm, I'm thinking about my students my my, my pre-service teachers but uh, books that help people look at different populations differently, right? So yeah. I, I'll never forget the experience when my students read, uh, there was this, uh, I can't remember the title now, but it's a book about um, uh, an, a Hmong immigrant, you know, and, and it was a culture that the students were not even familiar with. My students they didn't even know who the Hmong population, uh, who they were, right? Yeah. And, and, and they were very impressed with the, the different, the idea of the funds of knowledge, the different ways of relating to natural phenomena, right? Things that they had never even considered in their lives before, because they tend to see the world through some very well established and formed way. So that's what I like to do. I like to expose them to, to real people and real stories that challenge their own thinking, that make them look at the world differently differently yeah so important to do um very cool thanks uh question number two would be uh what resource uh might you suggest uh could be online or could be hard copy um that teachers should go check out again there's uh, oh, that's there's another thousands. one of those yeah. <laughs> i like the work of uh rethinking schools a lot okay uh rethinking schools they have uh i'm sure they have a web they have the website and they have books publications uh, they also have a magazine that um, the reason why I like the work that is being done at uh, Rethinking Schools is because, uh, again, it's very progressive in the way of looking at uh, sure. what's realistically happening. The same thing about teaching tolerance, right, by the Southern Poverty Law Group. That, uh, yeah, that one's come up a couple of times on this podcast, is teaching tolerance. Yeah, yeah I, I love their resources. This is something that I always share with my students. Right. I also like those, and you see that I'm talking about the resources that are very um, easy to, to, to get yeah, and, 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 and they're accessible and they're also very relatable, right? Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not talking about like academic journals. I, I do like like the Kaplan Magazine or Educational Leadership because those are magazines that are very teacher-oriented. And going right. back to my point before that I think we have to learn to talk the talk and to understand mm-hmm. what it's like, you know, uh, yeah, it's almost like, um, uh, you know, having, having, uh, when you do research, uh, you do have to dig through those uh, research journals to find a lot of your stuff, but very little of it, you read it for enjoyment. <laughs> yeah. You read it for knowledge. Like it's, it's very difficult to connect the dots between the research and the practice, hence uh, this podcast. Absolutely. And, and this is actually one of the things that I, I, I was telling you earlier that I loved about the people that you put together, because I think uh, uh, that's what teachers needed. To, uh, and I'm not saying that we're giving here a recipe that tomorrow I will you know, go to your classroom and do this and do that. But I think that uh, we as teacher educators, we have to be able to communicate with teachers in ways that will help them develop their practice and improve their practice. And sometimes the research is dissociated with the practical aspect of the actual classroom and the actual students. Yeah. I so echo I everything are, you just said. <laughs> yeah. So I think those are great resources for teachers. Yeah. yeah. 
Awesome. Uh, what would be one piece of advice that you want to give teachers, maybe especially those who are uh, just starting out their careers? Uh, well, we know that uh, that unfortunately a lot of teachers, it's like between the three or five first years that we unfortunately end up losing uh, people mm -hmm. in the career. And part of the reason is, again, the, 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 even the social value of a teacher, right? The way that we blame teachers for the, the because students are not doing well in standardized testing or, and you name it now, while we know that standardized testing doesn't really show anything that uh, actually makes a difference. But uh, so I think that there's one word that I always, you know, comes back to me, the word resilience, right? Mm -hmm. I think uh, basically the advice is hang in there because it does get better. I think one, one of the problems that when, when our, I see from my own students when they graduate, you know, they have had their student teaching semester, they have had some field work, but that is different from being responsible and being the, that person in the classroom every day for a group of students. And, and in the beginning, it is tough. That's why I'm very much in favor of having some kind of, uh, uh, of following students after they graduate to give them the support systems that they need, some kind of mentorship, uh, you know, different types of programs that because this is the other thing, while they are at the university, they have all the support systems. The moment that they, 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 they have their own classroom, they're kind of, that's it, right? It's a little bit of an island effect, yeah. Yeah, so, so I know that some districts, they have some kind of induction programs, mm -hmm. but I think it is very important, and I like to do that myself, try to keep in touch with my students to go inside their classrooms, because, uh, and also tell them hanging there, because with time, uh, I think time is our, <laughs> As they say, time is the best instructor, right? It teaches you because yeah. uh, we only time to develop, to, to, to develop our knowledge, to, to learn to put knowledge into practice, experience, right? Yeah. So you have to give yourself a break. I know that today I am a much better teacher than I was, you know, yesterday, Definitely. right? Definitely, yeah. Last year, and, and that's true. And I've been teaching for many, many years and I still, I, 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 thank God I'm still improving, right? Well, right. the, the example that we just said before, during the pandemic, we all had to become online. Oh my teachers. goodness, we are all first-year teachers again. That's yeah, that's what exactly. Exactly. <laughs> We're that's all in the same I, boat now. That's how I feel, John. Because I am, I'm, I've been reading about that. I've been trying to learn from other people who have done that mm -hmm. longer than I have. Because I've, I, I always saw as one of my strengths as being that presence in the classroom, face to face, looking in the eyes, related to people in, in the physical space. And, and, and this is gone now. So I don't know if I am a good online teacher, but I'm, but I'm learning. I'm also trying to develop my own resilience. The same thing I tell my students. I'm trying to do the same myself. Because as you and said, I'm a first-year teacher again. Yeah, yep. <laughs> and that resilience is, is definitely another one of those muscles that uh, it gets, it's never going to get easier, but it, it somehow does as you do it more. So... Um, yeah. Fantastic. Uh, if anybody wants to reach out to you, has any more questions about what we talked about or just wants to say thank you, uh, where can we send them? Uh, I'm going to say my email. I think okay. that's yep. the, the easiest, uh, right? I, I'm not oh. always the best oh. person to respond right away. Because I <laughs> and especially nowadays, that's the other thing that has increased the volume of messages because that's yeah. how we are mainly communicating, right? Yes. Oh my heavens, uh, I'm getting flooded. Yes. Yes, but, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and it's so easy sometimes we get so many messages that we kind of disregard them because there's so much also information that comes from 
all over, you name All it. over. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, we will uh, make sure to link your email address in our show notes page that people can go check any of those uh, exit ticket questions as well as a bunch of the other th- stuff that we talked about today. So, uh, man, uh, Dr. Fernando Nidish, thank you so much for your time. This has been fantastic. John, thank you so much for having me. And there you go. Um, yeah, what a cool story he has, right? Uh, especially with his multiple experiences internationally. Um, yeah, I always say that whenever you get a chance to travel outside of the United States, do it because it really just opens your eyes to what really matters. Um, and his dedication to public education is just so admirable. Uh, and my my biggest takeaway from this conversation was uh, his analogy of a teacher acting like a bank and how we shouldn't just be this bank of information that distributes dividends over time to students in form of information, right? But rather, we need to be facilitators to the learning, right? And that shift in mindset of shift from, I have the information, you need to listen to me to get it, to let me help you figure out how you can get the information, right? That's so crucial because it engages the students in their learning. They're not passive. They're active now. Um, also, he uh, shared that quote that people don't teach how they were taught to teach. They teach the way that they were taught, right? And I think that's kind of just human nature uh, to fall back on replicating the experiences that we've had. Um, it, it brings to mind uh, a couple of quotes, one being, your actions speak so loud that what you say I can't hear. You ever hear that one before? Um, and another one, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Uh, those are two of my favorite quotes, and I think they kind of parallel uh, that same notion. Um, and it's just important for us as teachers to really reflect on how we are helping our students learn, right? Is it the best way, or is it the way that we were taught? Because usually it's not both. Right. So big thank you to Dr. Nidish. Um, if you want to read his book, you want to check that out, uh, go to our show notes page. Uh, we've got those referral links to his book as well as uh, Paulo Freire's book. Um, you can purchase those books and support this podcast. And the holidays are coming up if you're listening to this uh, when it releases. So you know what? Maybe there's a gift opportunity there. Um, and I would definitely appreciate your support. So the show notes are again at jabadoo.com slash show 19. That is J-A-B-B-E-D-U dot com slash show with the numbers one nine um on there again you can find our link to our facebook group uh you can sign up for our email newsletter stay up to date on all things educational and until next time go teach thank you so much for listening to the jabadoo education podcast if you enjoyed this episode and you want to hear more evidence-based strategies for improving your educational career, go ahead and click that subscribe button so you can get the next episode as soon as it is released. If you think this information was beneficial and you think more teachers should hear it, the greatest compliment you can give us is to share this episode with a colleague, either through a text message, email, or social media. And last but not least, if you think more teachers need to hear more of what we are talking about, please go leave us a five-star rating and review on your platform of choice. And that will simply let the algorithm know that you are finding value in this content. And it will help boost our show to the top of the list when people search for education shows. Thank you. I appreciate you. And I will see you on the next episode of the Jabadoo Education Podcast.